Welcome to Makeup Week. My name is Annabelle. And I'm V. And we're so excited for you to join us on our very first Way Back Wednesday. So I actually want to give a quick shout out to our first listener comment. We were so excited when we got this comment from our listener, Tina. And here's what she has to say. So Tina shares, so much about Vietnam that is available to the English-speaking world is almost exclusively about the war. While it is definitely an important part of our country's history, it is not its only history. Annabelle and I just wanted to say thanks so much, Tina, for sharing your thoughts on this topic with us. It's definitely salient and relevant to what we're going to be discussing today, which is legends and myths. Yeah, one of my favorite topics. I have so many fond memories of uh, falling asleep gently uh, when I was a kid in Vietnam and being told these stories over and over. I don't care that I heard them before. When I was a kid, I was just in love with these stories. And um, I have very fond memories of them. And actually, a lot of these legends and myths are based on real people, but due to the loss of historical records over time, um, they have reached an almost mythical status in Vietnamese uh, lore. So the first myth slash fairy tale that we're going to go into is actually the Vietnamese creation myth. And last week in our podcast about food, we actually brought up this uh, little known holiday that is celebrated with, you know, specific kinds of food. And the holiday is associated with the death of a mythical lady named Oka. And Oka is actually considered um, the mother of the Vietnamese people. She is a fairy who had descended from the mountains. And her husband is Lak Lam Quang. And his name is translated into um, Dragon King. So the story goes like this. Way back when... Vietnam had these mythical kings, all known as Hùng Vương. And Hùng Vương translated literally means uh, brave kings. There were many of them who carried that title. So the story begins with the second Hùng Vương, also known as Lạc Lâm Quân. And he was known as a conqueror of monsters far and wide. And so one day, Hùng Vương came across uh, Âu Cơ. She was known for traveling the lands and helping the people. One day she was doing so and she encountered this monster. We're not sure what kind of monster. It's just known as a monster. Latham Gwang came across the scene and he stopped to help her. And the two fell in love. And after their union, she uh, gave birth to this sack of a hundred eggs, which is, I know it sounds a little bit strange, but you know, they're dragons. Just bear with me here. So the hundred eggs hatched into a hundred beautiful, strong children. And that was considered, you know, the creation of the Vietnamese people. But one day after their children had been born, um, Alka and Lạc Lâm Quân sort of had this conversation with each other. And they agreed that they each longed to be somewhere else. Because he is from the sea. He's a great dragon king. He is descended from a dragon mother. And he wanted to be in the water. And she wanted to be in the mountains. So when their children overheard this conversation, the children agreed to split themselves. So there would be 50 that went with her up into the mountains and 50 that went with him back down to the water. And that is sort of the beginning, the, you know, genesis of the Vietnamese population. So uh, just hearing that, what are your thoughts? 
Annabelle, thanks so much for sharing that. I was really excited to hear the story, especially since we talked about it last time um, on our episode around food. You know, I've actually heard the names Alka and Laklamwung pretty often, you know. They're very popular and have been named throughout history, but I don't think I've actually explicitly heard the story itself. And to hear about it is just always really fun. Um, and I always just love learning something new about Vietnamese culture. I think what it brings to mind for me initially surrounds Vietnamese geography. So, you know, when folks think of Vietnam, they think of the sandy white beaches. They don't actually often think of the mountainous regions that are also associated with Vietnam. So, you know, I'm, I'm actually not too familiar with those mountainous regions myself, but Having lived in Vietnam for a short period of time, something that immediately comes to mind is a city called Sapa, which is in northern Vietnam. It has these beautiful trellises that are just super lush and green and um, actually where a lot of ethnic minorities live. And it's just a beautiful mountainside that I think is what comes to mind when I'm thinking about you know, Alka and like Lamung and how they separated into these two geographic areas. What are your thoughts? Definitely agree with that assessment. I think it's a beautiful way for the Vietnamese people to sort of explain our geographical settings, right? And um, I don't know if you've ever heard the term gong rong jiao ting. That is what Vietnamese people refer to themselves. And it translates to children of dragons and descendants of fairies, right? And so they're very proud of this creation myth. And there have been many names for Vietnam over the years just because of its history of colonization. But the one thing that had remained constant was how the Vietnamese people referred to themselves as Gong Ram Jiao Ting. Yeah, honestly, I think that's just so beautiful. And this is a whole nother topic. But one of my favorite things about the Vietnamese language in general is just how specific it is. I wish we could actually translate how beautiful Gong Ram Jiao Ting sounds because even though it just says like, oh, we're the descendants of dragons and children of fairies, it, it's very beautiful in Vietnamese. I don't even know how to explain it. And I don't know if you feel the same way, um, but just hearing you share those four words, it's, uh, it's really magical to me. Um, I know we've also talked about this before, but also throughout Vietnam, there are a lot of uh, different tributes that are made to Alka and Lạc Mông So I think something you've actually... Uh, shared with me in passing is there are a lot of streets that are named after these two, um, specifically intersection points where where lovers meet. And I think that also, again, outside of just speaking to the beauty of the Vietnamese language, as you pointed out too, also speaks to how romantic Vietnamese people are. And not in a sappy, like, rom-com cheesy way, but in a, a really beautiful poetic way that is just demonstrated through our language and the ways in which we use words. Mm -hmm, for sure. It's romantic in a very artistic, traditional sense, right? Um, and yeah, I think that is one of the things that I have to agree with the older generations on about learning your own language, because there's a certain poetry in Vietnamese that cannot be translated into English. And likewise, you, there, are certain, there are certain aspects of English poetry that you can't translate into Vietnamese. So we're not the only poetic people out there, but that is one of the benefits of learning other languages, right? So you can get the nuances that are lost when you translate them. I really do appreciate that romantic aspect that people are still naming streets after these legendary lovers thousands of years after this creation myth supposedly happened, right? So I think that's wonderful. 
So as I mentioned before, the moniker Hongvun is actually taken up by multiple different mythological kings in Vietnam's history. Whether or not they were real people, we don't actually know. They might just be myths purely, they might be real people, or they might be mythical embellishments of real people. But there is another story involving another Hongvun, and we don't know if it's actually the same one, but this is one of your favorites. So why don't you share it with the class, B? Thanks, Annabelle. I'm super excited. So, you know, according to legend, Hongvun, one of the many Hongvuns, probably, we're not sure which one, wanted to choose a son as the successor to his throne. So he pulled all of them together and said, you know, whoever brings the most precious offering to the altar of the ancestors is the one who's going to be awarded the throne. So all of the princes traveled throughout Vietnam in search of the tastiest and what they considered the most exotic foods to offer their father, except for Lang Liu, the 18th prince. Uh, Lang Liu was the poorest prince, and so he thought he didn't have a chance to compete for what the other princes or his brothers would bring. He really didn't know where he had to start looking and spent a lot of his time praying to the gods, actually, for some help. So one night, he had a dream where he learned about these two cakes, and he learned about the meaning behind these two cakes. So in this dream, a genie popped up and said, there's nothing greater than the sky or the earth, and the rice grain is the most precious thing in the world. So use gao nip, which means uh, glutinous rice. It's a little bit stickier than normal, um, like jasmine-style rice, to make banqing, which is a green and square cake symbolizing the earth. Um, and this was because, you know, a long time ago, people thought the earth was square. Um, so this banqing would be uh, filled with daosan, which is mung beans, and meat, which symbolizes animals. Uh, and so that's kind of a combination of the significance of plants and animals. And lastly, banana leaves would be used to cover the cake, uh, which symbolizes the protection that parents often offer to their children. Wait, not often offer. They always offer it. Jeez, did I just say often offer? Some parents do suck, though. <laughs> okay, okay. So these mentions would be wrapped in banana leaves, which symbolizes the protection and care that parents have for their children. Uh, lastly, any remaining gaonip would be used to make banyai, which is a white dome-shaped cake and symbolizes the sky. So here together, you would have the square-shaped earth and dome-shaped sky. And so Lang Liu woke up from his dream. He was super happy, and he put together these two cakes that he learned about from the genie and brought them to his den. The day of the contest came, and Hongvung examined all of the offerings brought to him by his sons, but he wasn't really satisfied. He finally came upon Lang Liu's cakes and was just super impressed. And so from there, Lang Liu was chosen as the successor to the throne. Since then, Manjing and Manye have become traditional cakes that are often eaten uh, and savored during that or Vietnamese Lunar New Year. If you're familiar with Manjing and Manye, you'll also know that there is also another cake called Van Te. Uh, which is uh, kind of like a cylindrical shaped cake. It actually is pretty much the same thing as banjing, but sometimes just has different uh, fillings and is just often typically eaten in the South. What are your thoughts, Annabelle? Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I do love that story. First of all, like you mentioned, because it involves food and I like knowing things about food, like especially, you know, uh, Vietnamese food 
we had an, an entire episode about how our food has been disconnected from its roots by gentrification of Vietnamese food because it's now the buzzy in fashion food, right? So it is so nice to be able to connect these foods back to their roots and explain why they're eaten for certain occasions because they are often indicators of occasions. And the second thing that really stood out to me is that story, like a lot of other Vietnamese tales are about, instead of just about flaunting your wealth or the importance of money, they are actually about how much thought and care that you put into something. I think it speaks volumes, right? That the most impressive dish is the one that was created with a lot of care and thought and cooked with ingredients that were found in the homeland. I think that speaks a lot about our morality and our values. What you just shared really resonates with me uh, just in learning about the story, which is again, as I shared earlier, one of my favorites. I not only appreciate it because it talks about food and the history of our food, uh, but really speaks to the values that Vietnamese people have. I think aside from what you just shared around the morality and the values that we hold to be true. I think it's also about making the most out of everything. What we talked about on our last episode was about how, you know, we use all the innards of every animal that we eat. Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, we can naturally attribute or say that comes from having lived through a war, but I think it's also just baked into our history and our culture of wanting to ensure that we're grateful for everything and really rooting ourselves in that sense of appreciation. Uh, and then also just to speak to what you mentioned earlier around really connecting to nature in this way, that's also something that I appreciate about this story is the thoughtfulness that goes into ensuring that we are truly honoring Mother Nature and whether that's, again, the rice that we grow the animals that inhabits, you know, the different regions or even the different plants or greenery that exists throughout Vietnam. You know, in recent days in American culture, we've talked a lot about sustainability and climate change and what's happening to the earth. It's something that we really value and always want to make the most of. I'm actually so glad you brought up that point because a, part, a large part of Vietnamese um, exports is agriculture, it's rice, right? and just, you know, natural resources in general, there have been a lot of news stories about how the climate crisis is actually affecting a lot of Vietnamese farmers and uh, fishermen. There were stories a few years ago of uh, foreign companies that were producing things in Vietnam, polluting the water and killing a lot of fish. And it was not a huge international story, again, because I think Vietnam is often overlooked, but it was a big deal within the Vietnamese American community so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up the point that a lot of our stories are about respecting nature as well. Um, one of my favorite stories, and I've told you this one before, is called Anke Javan, right? And so it literally means uh, eat star fruit, returns gold. But the story is about finding a balance from how much you take from nature. And we don't, we're not going to go into that story too much today. But if you do have time, please look up that story. It's called Anke Javan. Every Vietnamese food or dish I've ever had oftentimes is prepared by badass Vietnamese women. So this next story is a story that Annabelle has told this to me before, but she's an amazing storyteller and I'm excited for her to tell it again for everyone else to listen to about these three badass women warriors. So take it away, Annabelle. 
Yeah, if you know me and you, I know personally, have had to endure many of my tangents about badass Vietnamese warrior women, and there are many of them. So three of my favorites. Uh, let's start out with the story of Hai Ba Trinh, because that was the earlier story, according to the timeline. So Hai Ba Trinh is Trinh Chak and Trinh Nhi. So Trinh Chak is the older sister, and Trinh Nhi is the younger sister. Trinh Nhi is also translated into second Trinh, right? <laughs> so she's the younger sister. Uh, story goes is that during the first Chinese occupation of Vietnam, I say the first because there would be about four in total for like a thousand years. Um, but during the first Chinese occupation of Vietnam, during the Han Dynasty of China, areas within Vietnam were divided up into these commanderies that were under the rule of, you know, Chinese generals. One area where uh, Hai Ba Jing lived, the story goes is that the locals who were living there grew more and more frustrated with the Chinese rule because of its ruthlessness and corruption. So eventually, these two sisters who were, you know, very intelligent and very capable because they knew martial arts, they were well-trained in martial arts, took up the rebellious cause against China. And they actually managed to drive away the, the Chinese commander for a little while, and they established a rule of about three years, actually before the Chinese had had enough and gathered their forces and came back in to attack. And this time they managed to defeat Hai Ba Jing. At that time, Hai Ba Jing had lost the support of some of their soldiers because they saw the incoming force from China and they were pretty scared. When the Vietnamese kings were able to regain control of the country and throughout all of these struggles against Chinese domination, when they finally regained control, the Vietnamese kings actually compiled uh, a historical account of Hai Ba Jing. When you compare the Vietnamese history book, which is actually called the Complete Annals of uh, Dai Viet, the account about Hai Ba Jing is very venerated, whereas the Chinese account treated them as more of a nuisance and didn't mention their background or their military competency at all. So the Vietnamese kings made uh, an attempt to reclaim Hai Ba Jing. And nowadays, if you visit Vietnam, there will be a lot of small temples that are. Uh, dedicated to these two sisters, and there are parades and festivals that are dedicated in their name. During researching the story, it brought up the importance of historiography, which is the actual writing of history. And who usually gets to do that is usually the oppressor. Oftentimes when you have a lot of privilege in society, you get to write the story. And so we as people of relative positions of privilege need to be careful about how we talk about communities that have been historically oppressed, as reflected in our own Vietnamese history. And we often get the short end of the sick when it comes to uh, being left out of the story or being dismissed. So that is the story of Hai Ba Jing. And the third lady that I'm Really, I'm just so enamored with her story for multiple reasons. Uh, it's Ba Jiu, Jiu Tijin. She is known for um, joining her brother in his rebellion against the um, Wu Dynasty of China. And she succeeded for about five or six months in holding them back. And she was so brave and so capable that uh, the troops actually chose her to be their leader. Eventually, she was defeated by the Chinese army, and uh, legend has it that she either committed suicide or was killed in battle. But she has since also been immortalized and lionized by the local people as a symbol of uh, rebellion and of just this 
indomitable spirit. The one thing about Baju that is fascinating to me uh, is that she was historically described as having meter long breasts. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> meter long. Okay. I, I, that's just, I'm like trying to imagine it. I'm like, what? Um, but, but she was known for riding into battle in this golden robe, right? And, and tying her breasts behind her back because they were so flowing. But that was, <laughs> that was known as one of her defining beauty traits. She was known to have legendary beauty and her meter long breasts was one of the reasons. Girl, I gotta say, did bras <laughs> exist back then? And also, what kind of back support did she have? Because, man. Just, <laughs> they were just flapping in the wind when she rode into battle. It doesn't matter, right? Like Badass. I mean, come on. You gotta think about the support needed for that. So she's badass. You gotta she, say. She tied it behind her back. That's her, <laughs> that's her makeshift Heck bra. yes. <laughs> I think it's wild that like beauty standards have shifted so much that meter long breasts were considered. Um, and actually, I think in Greek mythology too, goddesses were described as having very long, sagging breasts. Yeah, you're so, right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm not going to go in too much into it. But, um, and one other tidbit that really, really tickles me pink about Machu is this quote from her, and I'm gonna read it in, I'm gonna try my best to make this sound poetic in my terrible uh, Vietnamese American accent, okay? So this quote from Baju says, Tôi chỉ muốn cởi cơn gió mạnh, đạp luôn sống dữ, chém cá trường kinh ở biển đông, lấy lại giang sơn, dựng nền độc lập, cởi ách nô lệ, chứ không chịu khom lưng làm tì thiếp cho người ta. So what does that translate to? It means she she wants to ride the storm. She wants to slay sharks in the Eastern Sea. She wants to reclaim the empire, Vietnamese empire, and establish her own name. She wants to shake off the, the shackles of slavery, and she doesn't want to become anybody's concubine. That is a pretty badass fucking quote. I don't know how much of that is true, but the fact that it is attributed to her and the fact that like Hai Ba Jing, if you go back to Vietnam now, there are small temples that are dedicated to her and festivals in her name. That shows you what the Vietnamese people um, really value, right? What are your thoughts? One, I think your Vietnamese is excellent and your translation is gorgeous actually because I also looked at the translation for that and I think yours is a million times better. So well, I'm really you. glad um, that you shared that. <laughs> You know, I've heard the stories of Hai Bat Jung and Bachu before, but I've never heard that quote. And I just think it's super powerful. For anyone who knows us, y'all know that Annabelle and I also both really like comics in different ways. And uh, a recent TV series that I watched was Watchmen on HBO. And I was telling Annabelle this as we were looking into this episode, but uh, there's also a character on Watchmen called Lady Jew, and she is super powerful, badass. Maybe she's doesn't have the best morals, but she's super badass. I was just thinking, oh, is this what that is connected to? I have no idea, but um, just a random pop culture reference there. Um, but mostly I just wanted to share that because I think it's important for people of our generation to remember stories like this. You know, we talk a lot about oral histories and there's so much that's going on when it comes to social movements in today's world, 
whether that's Black Lives Matter, again, what we mentioned on the first episode around anti-Asian sentiments, um, but it's really important to know our own roots as well. Oftentimes, I think people see Asian women, perhaps Vietnamese women, as being really submissive. You know, you hear stories about Americans coming from the United States and looking to marry Vietnamese women because they'll pretty much do their bidding or to Bachu's quote, like they'll essentially be a modern day concubine of some kind, right? And I think it's important for us to remember these oral stories and our oral history because Vietnamese women are freaking strong. They're powerful. You know, we ourselves are all the descendants of Hai Bachung and Bachu in some way. And especially as two people who also identify as being Vietnamese American women, I think it's just really empowering to hear these stories and to be reminded of the strength that we've always had inside of us just because it's always been rooted in the stories of our ancestors. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember these are not disconnected stories, right? They are part of the Vietnamese oral history. And actually going back a little bit more recently, in the 1800s, uh, I just remember this name when I was doing research. My mom used to tell me stories about her. She actually, my mom told me all of these stories when I was younger. And then she wondered why I am the way I am, right? <laughs> no, um, so there's another woman called Bui Thi Suong. She's known for fighting this tiger and saving her husband from a tiger. And um, she was also part of another rebellion. This was a rebellion against the Vietnamese government at the time. So this was in the 1800s. She has also become a woman of legend and there are shrines and, and other things dedicated to her as well. The Vietnamese people actually has a tradition of venerating badass women, right? We are not submissive. We are not complacent. So, you know, it's important to call back into the present what happened centuries ago because it's actually still happen happening now. We can be revolutionaries. We can seek to rebel against what the status quo is. And it's pretty much in our blood. And so, you know, as we remember these really incredible, powerful women, at least for me personally, it reminds me to have faith, to bring to life courage that I feel like sometimes is really hard to find. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Me Got Beat. We're super grateful that you've stuck with us for three episodes so far. And we really look forward to continuing the conversation with you next week, where we'll have a very special guest, someone who is super important to both of us, is very near and dear to our hearts, and is a badass woman warrior herself. We're really excited for this upcoming episode because, as you know, we've reflected on a lot of our oral history and, um, just a lot of the impact that these stories have had on us over time. Um, but this next episode is going to be really personal. It's going to be sharing a lot about who we are, um, where we've been, and what we've been through. And just really excited to get personal with everyone on this next episode. For sure, yeah. You're, you might get to learn a few things about us that you didn't care to know, but this is our podcast. So <laughs> join us next time. My name is Annabelle. And I'm V. And this has been Makeup Beat. Bye.